Welcome to today's podcast. For the next couple of uh, podcasts, I'm going to be focusing on the life of Charles Haswell Campagnac. Now, some of you may remember some time ago, I interviewed Sandra Campagnac regarding the life of her father, Lieutenant Colonel Raymond George Arnold Campagnac and the book she wrote about his life called Burma's Son. Well, as it happens, her grandfather, Sandra's grandfather, also write, wrote an autobiography about his life, and Sandra managed to pull it all together after he passed away. The autobiography is called The Autobiography of a Wanderer in England and Burma, and it tracks the fascinating life of Charles Haswell Kamenyak. Now, he was born on the 14th of January 1886 and only died at the age of 86 years in 1970. So he lived through a lot of important years in Burma, the years leading up to the war and after the war when Burma was seeking independence. Charles was Anglo-Burmese, like his uh, children, and he became mayor of Yangon or Rangoon in 1927. He studied in England. Uh, his father sent him back there for studying, and he became a barrister in 1909 and then returned to Burma to practice law at the age of 23. So there's some fascinating stories about his life as a barrister and in general, and I will read some of the extracts of his life story for you in these podcasts. So to start, let's go to chapter six, which is headed Burma, and it deals with immediately after he arrived back in Rangoon, having completed his admission as a barrister in Middle Temple. When I returned to Burma, I had only about 50 rupees in hand. My father had arranged with a gentleman who had formerly been a schoolmaster under him to put me up. The day after I arrived in Rangoon, I went to the chief court of Lower Burma, as it was called before it became a high court, and ascertained from the registrar I'd have to pay 500 rupees to be enrolled as an advocate of the court. In Burma, advocates practice both as barristers and solicitors. The next thing I did was go to a friend of my father and ask him to lend me 500 rupees. Having obtained this loan, I went back to the court and had myself enrolled. After this, I went in search of de Glanville. I knew that his chambers were on 36th Street. Rangoon was laid out with two narrow streets bearing numbers and then a broad street which was given a name. These streets were intercepted by broad streets which were also numbered. I walked down Dalhousie Street until I came to 36th Street. I turned into this street and to my astonishment, I found Japanese women who were sitting on the verandas in front of the houses called out to me, Hi, young man, come in and I'll give you a very good time. It seemed incredible to me that de Glanville would have chambers in such a street. So I retraced my steps and on inquiry found that there was another block of 36th Street between Dalhousie Street and Merchant Street. 
In those days, the northern blocks, 36th, 35th, 34th and 33rd Street, were occupied by Japanese prostitutes. 30th Street and 31th Street were occupied by a mixture of Indian and Burmese prostitutes, and 29th Street was occupied by European prostitutes. It was more than 10 years after I arrived in Rangoon that these women were cleared out of the streets I've mentioned through an agitation set on foot by the Vigilant Society. On meeting to Glanville, I told him I had only 50 rupees and that I wanted to start practice immediately. He told me that I could not expect to get a case for six months and that, if I was prepared not to wait so long, I could occupy a room in his chambers. I told him I could not wait and so he said the best thing I could do was to open an office on my own, put up a board and jog along. What he did not tell me was how it would be possible for me to take an office and buy furniture with 50 rupees. I left de Glanville's offices and as I was going down Merchant Street, I was hailed by a Burmese I'd first met in England named Chaw Din. He shouted out, where are you going, Charles? I said, I'm looking for an office. Chaw Din told me that I could come to his chambers and occupy the room of his pater, Mung Kin, who was on leave in England. He said I could use his clerks and take any cases that happened to come my way, and that if I could not take and he could not take a case which came to him, he'd make it over to me. I jumped at this offer, and then and there accompanied Chordin to his chambers. That evening I returned to my lodging. I told my landlord what had happened, and he said, I think I can put a case your way. He then took me to a hotel in Rangoon where he introduced me to a man who was the chief steward on one of the steamers sailing between Rangoon and England. This steward had entrusted £300 to a junior partner in one of the European firms in Rangoon to invest for him in the Burma Oil Company. He had made several trips to Rangoon, but had never been handed the shares, nor could he get his money back. I now felt justified in renting a flat on 5 Park Street within walking distance of Chaw Din's office. On Sunday, I decided to attend the Protestant Cathedral and put on the frock coat, striped waistcoat and pinstripe trousers, which I brought with me from England. In the street, I hailed a Tonga Gary, a one-horse hackney carriage. The driver of the vehicle called out to the driver of another vehicle, Burmese words, which being interpreted means this gentleman dressed like, dresses like the Lieutenant Governor, but rides in a gary, which called the man he addressed to break into loud laughter. However, I had dr myself driven to the church where I discovered there no one wore a frock coat, but nearly all of them wore linen or trouser lounge suits. I never again wore my frock coat and top hat when I attended church. I told the steward to come to my office the next day when I would write a notice for him. I wrote a letter to the man to whom he had entrusted the money and said that if the money was not returned within 24 hours, I would file a criminal complaint against him for breach of trust. That day I was visited by an English solicitor, Mr Greening. He tried to frighten me by telling me what an influential man his client was and, that would, and I would get into serious trouble if I did not withdraw the notice I had written. I listened patiently to what Mr Greening had to say and then told him that I had ascertained that criminal complaints had to be filed at half past ten in the morning in the court of the district magistrate 
and that if by that time the $300 had not been paid to me, I should file a complaint against his client. Mr. Groening came to see me at 10 o'clock the next morning when I had the complaint drafted in front of me. He again tried to persuade me not to file a complaint. I cut him short and told him that if he, if he was not interested in what I was saying uh, and that if in 15 minutes the $300 or the 300 pounds was not handed to me, the complaint would be filed. Greening then offered to give me a check, which I refused, and I said the payment must be in cash. He then reluctantly pulled out a case and handed me the equivalent of $300 in rupees. I consulted Chordin about the fee I should charge for this work, and he said 340 rupees. For a reason which I never ascertained, barristers in Rangoon always calculated their fees in gold mohurs. A gold mohur was equivalent to 17 rupees, whereas doctors, who also took their fees in gold mohurs, were only paid 16 rupees for a gold mohur. The gold mohur was a coin which had been used in the time of the Burmese kings. When my client came to see me, I handed him the equivalent of 300 pounds and told him my fee was 340 rupees, which he very gladly paid and asked me to have dinner with him that night. In many of the cases in which Charles Haswell Kampanyak appeared, the dishonesty of the police is very clear. And in fact, he says, it's not surprising that anyone who has not resided in Burma for a number of years, and more especially someone who has been accustomed to believe in the integrity of the British police, whose reputation for justice and fair play is renowned throughout the world, should express supplies at the conduct of the police. It may be well, therefore, that I quote from A History of Modern Burma by J.F. Cody, Professor of History at the Ohio University. He writes, and I'll just read some of this, the 1941 report on the Bribery and Corruption Inquiry Committee was a revealing and realistic document which stripped away much of the reputation of British colonial rule for superior standards of honesty and efficiency. The report estimated that 50 to 70% of the subordinate magistrates made a business of selling justice and that police offences varied from a refusal to record evidence of certain crimes without a fee to denial of bail and from extracting protection money from keepers of alleged brothels and gambling and opium dens. Excise officers amassed quick fortunes and were allegedly 100% corrupt. I'm coming towards the end of this particular uh, podcast and one thing we note is that uh, Mr. Kampanyak was very close to the Muslim community. But in his book, he refers to them as Mohammedan, not uh, Muslims. And I'll finish the uh, podcast with a couple of cases in which he was involved. Another Mohammedan case in which a public subscription was raised to brief me related to riots which broke out between the Hindu and Muslim communities on the occasion of Bakra Eid, that is when the Mohammedans slaughter bullocks in their houses in commemoration of Abraham offering up his son for sacrifice. 
The killing of animals is highly repugnant to Hindus and many disturbances occurred throughout Burma and India during this festival. In this particular case, a Mohammedan had been dragged out of his house by a large Hindu crowd and severely beaten. As a result of a free fight with sticks and stones, broke out between the Hindus and Mohammedans in the vicinity. As it was impossible to identify the actual assailants of the Mohammedan, a large number of Hindus and Muslims were put on trial for rioting. The Hindus were represented by Sir Robert Giles, one of the leading members of the bar. This case was tried at the sessions of the Rangoon High Court before a jury, and I was successful in getting all of my Mohammedan clients acquitted while Sir Robert Giles' Hindu clients were sentenced to imprisonment for a period of two years. As a result of these cases, I became well-known amongst the Mohammedans of Rangoon. After I'd been with Azam for a year, I felt that I was doing most of the important work of the firm. I was entitled to more than a quarter share in the business, and as Azam was not prepared to increase my share, I dissolved the partnership and commenced to practice on my own account. I was greatly encouraged and helped to establish chambers of my own by my friend A.E. Salaji. He secured chambers for me at number 6 Bar Street, Rangoon, where I resided and carried on my practice for over 25 years and where all my children were born. Soon after I removed to number 6 Bar Street, I was engaged in one of the most sensational cases which occurred in Burma, a case which went to the Privy Council and which was the subject of comment in English, Burmese, Indian, and even continental papers, and about which many questions were put in Parliament. Well, I'll finish this podcast here, and in the next podcast, we'll deal with that famous case. Thank you very much for listening.